The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the edition podcast from The Spectator, where each week we look at three pieces from the magazine with the writers behind them. I'm Laura Prendergast, The Spectator's executive editor. And I'm William Moore, The Spectator's features editor. On this week's episode, we'll be looking at the politics of policing protests. We'll be asking whether smartphones are making us care less about humanity. And we'll be learning about the genius of Ronald Furbank. First up, in his cover piece for the magazine this week, Ian Acheson discusses the potential disruption to Armistice Day proceedings in London this weekend by a planned pro-Palestine march. He says that the Metropolitan Police Chief Mark Rowley is right to let the protest go ahead if his officers can enforce the law. He joins us now along with Baroness Claire Fox. Mark, could you give us a little bit of the context for this weekend? Should we expect the Armistice Day proceedings to be disrupted? So, so what's happened is that uh, Mark Rowley, the Met Commissioner, has had a look at the law. Um, and the, the backdrop, obviously, is um, what I would think is quite a lot of um, political pressure uh, on, on him to um, at least uh, decide to ask the Home Secretary for permission to, to ban the parade, which is the only legal route that he can take. But he's uh, looked at the intelligence that he's got currently. Uh, obviously, intelligence is not available to, to you and I. And he's looked at the available resources that he's got, and I'm sure he has paid or he should have paid attention to public disquiet over what looks like appeasement in relation to uh, previous policing operations of the Palestinian parades. And he's concluded that it does not, the the, uh, information he has does not cross the high threshold which would permit him to ask the Home Secretary to ban the parade, a decision, of course, that would be subject uh, almost inevitably to judicial review. So, you know, on that basis, I accept that uh, you know that the march should go ahead, but I think the test for the Met absolutely this weekend is to put on a policing operation where the law is enforced, and those are existing laws, not not the ones that I'm afraid Sir Marcus said that he also needs, but we've got existing legislation for public order and for uh, religious uh, uh, and uh, racially motivated hate crimes on the statute books. That needs to be rigorously and visibly and immediately enforced if the protests that are happening, obviously, in the afternoon, well away from the cenotaph and well after the two-minute silence, uh, if if those protesters break the law. That is the massive test. And I don't think it's a test that he can survive if we see repeated scenes that we've we've seen before taking place again around Armistice Remembrance Weekend. Hmm. Well, uh, Rishi Sunak was already said that whatever happens on Saturday, if if things do get out of control, then it's the Met who is fully uh, accountable for this, uh, sort of trying to wash the government's hands of this somewhat. Do you think the public will see it that way? No. In a <laughs> word, uh, they, they won't. Because whatever you think of Suella Braverman's contribution to uh, this debate over the rights and wrongs of, of protest, the Home Secretary is, is the visible face of policing to the voting public. And, and so is the, obviously the Conservative Party, who, let's not forget, have that claimed mantle as the party of law and order, which seems to be rather crumbling at the moment. So, yes, I mean, it's, it's quite good to be able to outsource this uh, 
in some ways to, to the Met Police. But I think that's an act of pretty dangerous sophistry, frankly. They either should have said this is entirely uh, down to the police operational independence and we're going to leave it at that, or said, you know, actually we're going to step in here because, you know, the, the public uh, will see the Met as the, the, the sharp end of this policing operation, but they'll also see, see their elected government as the people who are ultimately responsible for policing the streets of the country, keeping people safe, and being able to, uh, for example, guarantee that uh, Jewish people are fully entitled to go about their normal business and not feel put in fear or terror by some extremely malevolent and anti-Semitic elements of these protests that have been absolutely present and are, you know, from the start and are likely to be present, uh, you know, this weekend. That's not to say, just to, to finish the point, that it's entirely legitimate for people to go on a, pro, uh, a protest to protest against what Israel is doing in Gaza. That right is, is as legitimate as it is, I must say, to the much quieter uh, and forgotten about outrage that there should be over Hamas terrorists butchering 1,400 uh, Israeli civilians and taking 240 citizens hostage. The thing that's so ironic listening to Ian is that I've spent a lot of time over recent years arguing against an encroachment of hate crime laws on free speech and an ever-growing armory of public order offences that are added on to the right to protest and saying that these are, you know, fundamentally an attack on civil liberties. So it's totally galling that we're in a situation where the police say, oh, we haven't got enough laws and we don't know what to do. You think, God almighty, you've got so many laws that could have been used. This idea that it's like, oh, well, what can we do? We don't know what to do. And we do know, and this is something that Suella Braverman has mentioned, but I think it's a verbally legitimate one, that there doesn't seem to be any ambivalence about deciding what hate is on certain topics, like the obvious, infamous gender ideology one. But people are constantly being visited by the police for transphobia and so on and so forth. But they have this sort of inability to spot anti-Semitism when it's on these demonstrations. So one feels... There's something going on here that doesn't feel quite right. No way should this demonstration be banned or any demonstration be banned. But the reason we've got into this situation is that there's been constant examples on demonstrations of people obviously and flagrantly breaking the law and the police just standing there. And from the public's point of view, it therefore looks as though law and order has broken down. And that can lead to a reaction of people saying, how dare you? And obviously, this is a particularly provocative day. And we know that that's true. But if the demonstrations had been police, it, it's perfectly right that a lot of people who go on the demo say, well, I never heard people shouting jihad. And I never, but you know, there's sufficient examples where illegalities obviously happened, flagrantly people screaming at the police themselves. I mean, we'll all have known people who lost their temper when they were stopped for a speeding offence or something and ended up getting taken in by the police. But somehow the streets of London at the moment, you can scream abuse at the police on these demonstrations and they just stand there and go, what can we do? And I think it's those double standards that's caused us a great deal of jeopardy to hard fought for civil liberties and the principle of freedom, which I'm trying to defend, because it looks as though that freedom can't 
keep order, whereas I don't think that's a problem at all. And do you think, Claire, that if there is a legitimate terror threat, that that should be a reason to come to it, or do you think it should go ahead regardless of any possible threat? I expect the police to do... I mean, if there's terrorists on the march... I mean, this is, this is the sort of thing where they go, we've now discovered that the people who are organising the march have got links to Hamas. Well, I mean, you know, if you've got people who are wandering around who are suspected of being involved in terrorist organisations, they're really legitimate with the police to have them under... You know, that's... Do your job. I'm not expecting... I want Islamists who are a threat. You know, I want the police to know about that, to deal with that that's not i'm not somebody who thinks there should be no laws i want them to stop terrorism i also as it happens think that one of the reasons why people don't feel safe is this sort of perception of the police as being unable or unwilling to intervene and it's 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 like the kind of frustrations around just stock oil but much more unsavory because this sort of examples of anti-Western Islamism. I mean, basically got this toxic mix of Islamism and the worst of identity politics and campus life, the idea that all Jews are the possessors of a particular sort of white privilege and therefore, you know, deserve what they got effectively, combined with an anti-Western Islamism and decolonization, everything that could be most scary about kind of keeping order. And the state and the police just kind of go, oh, I don't know what to do. Now, I think it's a cultural problem, but where there are examples of law-breaking or threats like terrorism, fine, arrest them. But why didn't they do that when they were climbing outside? You know, they were climbing up scaffolding outside public buildings and the police were standing at the bottom checking they were all right. One of them held the flag for him, actually, I think, as well. Um, it's quite... With like the lads on the bus, and they're kind of going, are you safe up there? You know, let's get him down. No wonder we're tearing our hair out. Yes. Well, on that point, Ian, about double standards, do you, do you agree with Claire? I mean, she gave a good example there of how the, the police deal with, or perhaps don't deal with, uh, Just Stop Oil in contrast to other other examples. I mean, there's a few you list in your piece. You, you mentioned the visual... For Sarah Everard, in which which uh, a woman was was held down pretty forcefully for attending a peaceful visual. I mean, there's other examples many people could name, such as um, you know, if you're a 16 year old autistic teenager who calls a a copper a homophobic slur, you get you get banged up. But if you're shouting on the streets for jihad, then um, apparently there's just there's an important context to that. So so do you think that the public are justified, perhaps, if they do have a sense? of double standards when it comes to when the police use a heavy yeah. hand. Okay, so I, I think there's an issue here between perception and reality. So yes, the public will feel that there are double standards being applied and the, the infamous lesbian nana case that you've referred to is, is pretty easy to deal with from an authoritarian perspective if there's one kid and 10 officers. But let's just talk about the brutal reality here. 100,000 protesters in the streets uh, estimated or more at the first demonstration and 1,000 police officers. Policing a demonstration like that requires, and I've got some experience of of public order uh, from my home office days, requires a degree of pragmatism because you cannot, if, if 250 people are going past you screaming jihad as odious as that is, If you then absorb all the police officers that you have on duty to be able to arrest them, which normally would take at least three officers, and take them away from the demonstration, you're going to be overwhelmed very quickly. So the brutal reality here is that it's probably impossible to do more than, uh, without extremely large resources, contain a a demonstration like, like that. So 
Something has to give here. So, and hopefully this weekend there will be sufficient and overwhelming number of police officers on duty to actually be able to assertively intervene when, as Clara said, existing laws are being broken rather than be seen to stand sort of helplessly to one side. And then, you, you know, you create this uh, impression, at least, of appeasement. And, you know, you've only got to look just on the other side of that question at the, the metrics, the absolutely depressing and outrageous metrics of assaults on police officers every day of the week. Uh, certainly, I only, only have to look at them to conclude it's not, a, it's not an issue of courage here. It's an issue of doctrine. It's an issue of perhaps training. It's an issue of being unclear and confused about the law. And what we need is a moment of clarity this weekend where we have sufficient and suitable numbers of police officers on the streets of this capital city to be able to assertively go in and arrest people and be seen to be doing so when it happens, not three weeks later, in order to send out some kind of message to the silent majority that we always talk about, but who I believe are irrelevant here, who are dismayed at what they see as as you know, criminal triumphalist impunity that is that's happening on the streets. So we do need assertive policing this weekend. And if we don't get that assertive policing, we've got some really fundamental questions to ask about our values as a society. I, I don't want to be part of an increasingly authoritarian society uh, you know, that, that uh, is banning protests. If you look at France, for example, protests are banned and the protests happen anyway. And then you get the sort of policing that you have on the streets of Paris that I don't particularly want to see, and I speak as a former volunteer police officer, I don't particularly want to see in the streets of London. So we, we've got to have a really clear conversation about what values we have and what values must be protected. And in that respect, what we need to see is impartial policing, because impartial policing, which we, I don't think we've seen, is not the same as neutrality. Impartiality is about upholding existing norms and values in society, and they are being challenged by some elements within these protests. And we must see a firm and decisive response to that. Otherwise, we're in trouble, and I imagine Mark Rowley be reaching us for his P45. Claire, Ian mentions in his piece that the, the power to stop protests has, has occasionally been used, and he gives the uh, example of in 2011 when Theresa May forbade the English Defence League rally in London. Now, there have been reports that the EDL may also be protesting this weekend in London. What do you make of that? Do you think they should be allowed to protest as well? Well, you certainly can't ban a protest by the EDL if you're going to let the main protest go ahead on the basis that it's easier to ban the EDL. I don't think the EDL protest should have been banned in the past, by the way, but Ian makes the point well about what's happened in France, that, you know, you can ban a protest and it doesn't make the problem go away. I mean, in France, the demonstrations have got bigger since the bans have been brought in and it's led to more disorder on the street. The problem about banning something, an organisation like the EDL was, you might have banned the demonstration, but you just drove the problem underground. So you just made the point the EDL are now coming to London. But let's be clear, there is also a danger here, and this has started to happen both in the media and also in the political narrative. I noticed that hope, not hate, or in on the act here, are saying that the problem at the weekend is the far-right elements, as they put it, like the EDL, who are going to oppose the march. So somehow we've got to a situation where an anti-Jewish pogrom, nothing less, on October the 7th, in which Jews were slaughtered for being Jews by an organisation that wants to move all Jews off the face of the earth and set up a caliphate, We've ended up having a conversation about the problem being Tommy Robinson. 
and he couldn't make it up. And you think, he is not our problem. And although these demonstrations are largely full of well-meaning, I would suggest naive people who think that the way to resolve the problems in the Middle East is to call for a ceasefire, they are walking alongside people who are being openly anti-Semitic. Even if they weren't walking past them, they would have seen them on social media. And my view is, if I was on a demonstration who regularly had a load of anti-Semites on it, I might not turn up the next week with my mates. I would at least have an argument. And when I say I would, I have. Because when I used to go on anti-Iraq marches, you know, I, you'd be listening, you'd be walking next to people who'd say terrible anti-Semitic type things, yeah? And I'd have an argument with them. But a lot of the left, my lefty mates, had looked the other way. I, I've given examples before about seeing a Palestinian march. This was a good few years ago. Invading at Marks and Spencer's in Liverpool. And I had a row about it. I said, this is like, you know, Jewish shops. You know, doesn't that remind you of anything? This has been going on for a long time. And it's going on on these marches. Yet somehow the discussion is on the threat of the far right coming to defend the senator. I, I, first of all, they're a small group, an opportunist group. Tommy Robinson, there's never a cause he won't jump onto opportunistically, take no notice of him and ignore him. There are also a lot of veterans who are coming legitimately and members of the public. There's been journalists in newspapers who said, bring your friends, we're going to go down and defend. I think it's a bit sort of performative myself, but they are not the problem. The problem is culturally the growth of anti-Semitism in the UK that we have let grow to this extent and is now public. And politically, the problem of a lack of policing of the demonstrations as people perceive it. And I do think that, by the way, although the police have got a numbers problem, as Ian indicated, you know, his but to rear up a corridor or up a side road, right, doing their jihadi stuff, getting away with it, nobody doing anything... And the police might be under-resourced, but they've certainly got a social media team that's hyperactive. We're not only putting them out saying, we've we've had a committee meeting on jihad and our, on, on what jihad means, and our community advisors said this ABC. And then you just think, if you've got time to run committees deciding on what the flag denotes or that jihad's got a, you know, is an inward spiritual struggle and you're so, it's like numpty behaviour. But it makes you think, well, they've sort of got enough resources to do this, but they can't, when they see his material calling for a war against you, they're kind of like, oh, we don't think that's hate crime, sorry. Ian and Claire, thank you very much indeed for joining us today. Thank you. Next, are smartphones making us care less about humanity? That is the question that Mary Wakefield grapples with in her column in this week's magazine. And she says it's no wonder that Gen Z lack empathy when they spend most of their lives on social media. And she joins me now, along with Gaia Bernstein, author of Unwired, Gaining Control Over Addictive Technologies. Mary, could you start by telling our listeners why you wanted to write about this this week? Um, Well, it's not really fair to Gen Z because I noticed this phenomenon in myself, just as you're scrolling through looking for updates, it's this demented mixture of violence from the news and, um, you know, the things the algorithm thinks will relax you, like cakes and kittens and personal updates. And I just began to wonder what the mix was doing to us. You go to it when you're tired, you go to it for entertainment. 
And yet what you're getting is ultra violence mixed with, you know, kittens. So that's what inspired me. And then I thought, well, if it's having this effect on me, what's it doing to a young developing mind, someone as well, young as 12 or something like that? I'd love to know what Gaia thinks. Right. So I think what Mary is observing is not a coincidence. It's a very organized scheme by tech companies who are using a certain psychological principles to go to our most vulnerable places and to make sure we spend as much time as possible. And uh, the thing is, uh, it affects all of us, but it affects children much more. There are several principles that they use uh, for example, one of them, which uh, children are particularly vulnerable, is fear of missing out. So for us, if we see something in a social network and we feel like, oh, I wish I was at that party, probably we could live with that. For, for teens or for kids, it's much harder. And that means they will keep going to see what they're missing. And uh, for example, Instagram, Facebook, they have these disappearing stories. So you don't want to miss anything out. So you have to keep going and keep going. In addition, they use something called the intermittent reward model, which means that um, if you get a reward on an irregular basis, your brain uh, releases more of the neurotransmitter dopamine, which is uh, in charge of pleasure, uh, basically gives us pleasure. And they do this through Again, Mary, for what you were observing, so they're, they're giving us information and that they know will make us linger there for longer. So they know that certain upsetting things that make people angry will make them stay there for longer. They sort of know what we would be interested in. So the feed is not chronological. It used to be. It puts on the top the things which are the most upsetting or the most interesting. So it could be something that will upset you or something that will just uh, attract your attention. If, if you're interested, if you're thinking that you might uh, want to lose weight, you might start seeing stuff about anorexia. So, and the fact you don't know what you're going to see next, but you know it might give you some kind of boost of pleasure, it might be what you want, makes you keep going and going and going. You know, I, I, it, I find it horrific and terrifying what you just said gave me chills when you talked about the disappearing messages, making people sort of forcing kids to just stay there in case they miss something. It's so chilling. And it reminded me, if you watch videos these days, they're always clipped quite short, give you the feeling of needing to see the next thing. It's like everything has become a cliffhanger to keep people waiting for the next thing. And 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 so it seems to me kids will be in a permanent state, not just of looking at their phones, but adrenaline, always with the cliffhanger, always pushed to think there's be something else will happen. Right, and, and also because they're, they're waiting to get this now. Once you get these, you get used to getting these dopamine boosts, you just want more of them. It's this, it's this addiction issue. But what you're saying also about the fact that uh, the videos are very short and another one comes on, that's, that's another principle that's playing in here. They have taken away our stopping signs. There's never, ever an end. And that's based, yeah, it's based on a very well-known principle uh, in which two groups were given soup. And one group was given a regular bowl of soup and the other one was given a bowl of soup with no um, bottom. 
So they ate 70% more soup and they didn't even know they were doing it because they had no stopping cues and that's all over the internet. That's why on TikTok, every video, one ends, another one starts. Same thing on YouTube, same thing on Netflix and all these scrolls on Twitter, on no stopping point. There's never an end to a page. And Gail, would, would you agree with Mary's concern that the effect of all this isn't just addictive, it quite clearly is very addictive, but is it also uh, perhaps desensitising too? Could it actually have a very negative effect on developing minds? Yes. Let's start from the fact that, you know, going back here, some years, if you say something offensive to somebody and you see them in front of you, you can see the hurt, you can see, you can develop a sense of empathy and you can see how they feel and you might not go as far. But when it happens online, two things happen. First of all, you don't see the person you are hurting and also everything is amplified and you get used to this, this groups of, of, of people reacting to small things which can be extremely, extremely hurtful. Mm. And I suppose also you're, you're so used to living at this high pitch of drama all the time, you know, with violent reactions and dramatic clips and bright colours. That can't be good for a mind, a young mind. No, it, it can't be good for, that, for them. And also they're not used to the slow pace of just being in the schoolyard. They are used to getting so much symbolised that they keep doing that. I mean, you see them in the schoolyards, they're not talking to each other, they are on their phones. Yeah. And then we parents look at them and go, how can you be bored in the countryside? What's wrong with you? Well, we've trained them to need constant stimulation. Mm. And Mary, what do you think uh, can be done about it from a parent's perspective? I mean, you mentioned in your, your piece the sort of fear that parents have of taking your children's phones away, you know, because they'll get angry, you'll be accused of destroying their social life. And so what can a parent realistically do? Do you just need to sort of let your child hate you a bit <laughs> and take it away? Or, or what else can be done? I mean, I think, I think, you know, I think you're right. I mean, as I'm sure Guy will tell you, you know, the people who develop this technology don't let their own kids have it. And you see all the Silicon Valley billionaires saying, oh, I wouldn't give my kid a smartphone. And yet they've devised the drugs that destroy other people's children. Yes, it's a horrid combination. We're helicopter parents. We don't want to make our kids angry. We want to be their friends. And so it's very hard for us. I, we have to just take the phones away, I think. I don't know. Wait and ask me when my kid's a bit older. Gaia, would you agree with that? I think I agree we're in a really, really difficult situation because parents just feel desperate and powerless and they feel like they're losing their kids and they don't know what to do. I think it, it depends you know, how old the kids are. When the kids are very small, yeah, definitely you can take the screens away from them. I mean, there's no reason to, to give it to them. The problem starts when they sort of reach, uh, you know, the seventh, eighth grade sort of middle school. And then when other kids have it and they're on social networks, the way, the fact that there's a critical mass of kids on it and you take it away or you try to limit their time, they just, it's, a, it's an endless war. And you, at a certain point, you feel like you can't isolate them. So, yes, you can try to explain. But I do. I think that unless things change systematically, us alone fighting with our kids, blaming ourselves, blaming our kids, is not fared so well at all. Gaia, what do you think, though? I mean, I, I interviewed Jean Twenge, who was fascinating, and I think her response would be to say government has to regulate this. 
I'm a little reluctant to just keep putting power in government's hands and saying, well, it's your job to ban phones entirely. I don't know if it's even feasible. So I, I, in my book, Unwired, I basically talk about the fact we have to move towards collective action. And I think it's not, there's not, like, not one magic thing the government is going to do to solve this. But I think it's a combination of things of, yes, some government regulation, especially to protect kids. We're seeing already lots of parents suing social networks uh, in the United States for addicting their kids. Let's exert pressure on companies. And the goal is not to go back to the 20th century. The goal is to sort of redesign these technologies to get these addictive features out of there. I think a lot of things that uh, not just governments can do, but parents can do by influencing the schools that kids go to. Because if the kids on screens all day in school, that's what they do at home. If Minecraft becomes, you know, becomes a schoolwork, you can't tell a kid to get off Minecraft. And if the schools in my daughter's school, basically, they have to join Facebook in order to be part of the clubs. So there will be, so they have to be in these groups. And so that, there, are lots, there are lots of things that can be done outside the house collectively to make a difference. Yes, it's partly legal, partly government, but it's partly how we as people who operate in the world think. Like if you own a restaurant, are you giving your customers QR codes? So the moment they come in, they have their phones at the table, or will you give them regular menu? That's fascinating. Got it. it suddenly got the picture of us being in a sort of tug of war between where we live, the virtual world or the real world. Thank you, Mary and Gaia. Alan Honninghurst writes in this week's issue about Ronald Furbank, the innovative but little known English author who's recently been awarded a blue plaque. In the magazine, he sets out the reasons why Furbank is so deserving of one. And Alan joins us now alongside The Spectator's literary editor, Sam Leith, to discuss further. So, Alan, to start with, for people who might not be familiar with Ronald Furbank, can you start by explaining a bit more about who he was and why he's so deserving of the blue black? Furbank was a, to me, very fascinating novelist, a sort of radical innovator in the story of the English novel. He published seven very short novels, which really just threw away all the baggage and conventions of the Victorian novel and created something sparklingly new, quite difficult perhaps at the, at the start. He's a true modernist and I think one who's been monstrously overlooked in the, uh, the, the history of English literature in the 20th century. His innovations were uh, very influential on the following generation with writers particularly like Evelyn Waugh, Henry Green, Anthony Poe, Noel Coward, but you would look for his name in vain in almost any history of modernism or literature in the early part of the 20th century. And it's this persistent sidelining, which I feel has now uh, been defeated by the uh, erection of an English heritage blue plaque. Yes. And and Sam, Alan starts his piece by qualifying that not everyone will have heard of Furbank. And as he said just there, he, he, he's, been, um, he's been overlooked, perhaps very unfairly overlooked. I wonder, do you, do you agree with Alan's uh, analysis? Well, I, I think I do, at least to the extent that he's been overlooked by me. Um, <laughs> I'm ashamed to say I haven't read Furbank. And I can see sort of, you know, mortification contorting Alan, um, Alan's extremely polite features. 
but I mean, he's someone who I think, oddly enough, is well known now as much as anything as an influence on Alan Hollinghurst. I mean, the, the, you, Alan, you've done a very, very good job of giving him credit um, as an inspirer. And so I always think, God, Hollinghurst stuff's brilliant. I must read Furbank and haven't yet got round to it. And I think there's probably an awful lot of people in that boat. So as, a, as an inspirer then, Sam, has Alan's piece inspired you to pick up to pick up uh, some of Furbank's books? Well, it was a terrific piece. I thought, I mean, one of the real values of um, Alan's piece for me was that I had understood Furbank as as a humorist, as a kind of funny writer. And Alan set out very eloquently in that piece quite how formally innovative he was as well and what a, how important he was in the history of modernism, which, as I say, is, is, is you know, a great public service. I mean, I think you know, Alan is a sort of one-man Furbank recognition society, and it's, it's very pleasing that he's got the blue plaques now to prove it. That's the way the blue plaque system works. You know, that They're all proposed by members of the public, and they then meet either enthusiastic uh, assent by the panel or, more often, a fairly curt rejection. Uh, and sometimes really prolonged discussion. Well, that's good. A judicious panel. Are there, are there sort of lots and lots of people who write in? I mean, I'm sort of wondering whether there are thousands of people trying to get blue plaques up or whether it's just a sort of small minority of determined... Um, well, we had three numbers. meetings a year, and I think at each one we looked at 24 five or so proposals. Some, I think, are probably discounted for various reasons of ineligibility. For instance, the subject has to have been dead for 20 years. And if previously rejected, then there's a a time that has to elapse before they can be proposed again and so forth. In some cases, there's simply not an, an appropriate building left standing because there has to be the fabric which was actually there when the the individual lived there. They have to have had a kind of toe tap in the building, at least, do they? They do. Um, uh, And earlier on, there were blue plaques. I think there's one in Great Russell Street, which says that uh, Shelley or someone lived in a house on this site. But that's not allowed anymore. It has to be the actual house. Alan, you mentioned in your piece that you were introduced by to Furbank by your Oxford supervisor, John Bailey, and, and you say it was when you were starting out in a thesis about the hidden gay tradition in English fiction. Can you explain how Furbank fits into that tradition? Yes, I mean, he's very different, I think, from any of, any of the others. I was also writing principally about E.M. Forster, uh, who, of course, didn't publish in his long lifetime um, anything explicitly gay, though it was very fascinating to to trace through his work the effects on it of being gay and his, um, his, his avoidance of certain kinds of topic, his exploration of male friendships and so forth. A general sense of, of, of what you might do in the novel if you weren't doing the conventional marriage plot thing of um, the English social comedy. I think Furbank's technical revolution was one that was also a sort of moral revolution. Um, his work is once you penetrate it, it's it's often rather dazzling but difficult. Um, surface is amazingly subversive, and the relationships and desires that that he describes are almost all homosexual ones of one kind or another. He really introduced, I think, a note of of high camp into the English novel. His book books are full of risque innuendo. And as he goes on, he becomes bolder and bolder. After the war, he left England and barely 
visited again until he, he died in 1926. And those later books, which are all also set abroad, really constitute a kind of rejection of English prudery and hypocrisy, both sort of sexual and social and religious. So they are, in a way, much more radical, both morally and uh, formally, than, than, than Forster's books. And I think it's that their evident queerness, which is one of the reasons that's sort of kept him out of, out of the picture, and that the, the stern guardians of literary cultural history are offended by and um, embarrassed by, by the things that Furbank is, is doing and saying. And uh, just just to finish, I have a question for both of you, which is, well, starting with you, Alan, now, now that uh, you have succeeded in, in efforts to get Furbank's plaque up on, on, uh, in, in London, I'm wondering which novelist you think still is not uh, recognised by the Blue Plaque scheme, who deserves to be given one? I mean, who's next that you think uh, is being overlooked and, and needs to have a Blue Plaque up? Well, of course, I'm no longer party to the uh, the deliberations of the Blue Plex Fellow, so I don't know who's in the pipeline. But novelists are proposed all the time, of course. Um, and I think the 20-year rule does work quite well because it, it allows a reputation um, to do its preliminary settling, you know. But there are many novelists who have ardent um, advocates and quite notable people like Anthony Pohl, for instance, who was... Um, had a, a big backing from the Anthony Pearl Society. I mean, quite a, quite an organised proposal. I remember was quite robustly turned down by the by the whole panel. There's a feeling of of trying to to judge which way a, a, an author's reputation is going. Quite aside from the, the question of how highly the panel themselves regard their work. I'm very keen that that the great Penelope Fitzgerald should have a should have a plaque, and I feel that her reputation is enduring. Of course, blue plaques, the English heritage blue plaques, sort of coexist with many other schemes. And in fact, I was in the summer, I was down in Almerick Road in, in Battersea, assisting at the unveiling of a plaque to Penelope Fitzgerald there, which had been put up by a local group. And often blue plaques that would be good to have, such as to Daphne du Maurier, near where I live in Hampstead, are thwarted by the fact that there's already a local association plaque to them. But I... It would be lovely if Penelope Fitzgerald could have a plaque on the house in, in Highgate where she wrote her last novels. And how about you, Sam? Who, would, who do you think's been uh, perhaps overlooked? Well, I, well I, I was sort of racking my brains for this and I, it struck me that novelists you know, are very well represented, as Alan said, in the blue plaque department. And I'm sort of wondering whether poets... I mean, I was going to propose Tom Gunn because I think you could put a lovely blue plaque up in Jack Straw's castle where which is the name of one of his pub in Hampstead, huge pub in Hampstead, where he had his assignations with biker bang, gangs and um, wrote his second, I think that was the name, his second collection of poetry. But he hasn't been dead long enough. I'd love to see one to Stevie Smith in Palmer's Green, who I think is a very unique and interesting, I don't know whether exactly influential, but she's sort of in the line of descent from Blake, so she's very English sort of poetic talent and, and I think a wonderful, completely sui generis one. And the other thing I, th I, I thought was, you know, we don't... This is always said, nobody's ever erected a statue to a critic, but I'd love to see a blue plaque to, say, William Empson near his so-called borough in Cambridge, or Sheffield, sorry. And, you know, maybe maybe even Levis. I don't know whether Levis has got a blue plaque, but I think he's certainly at least as influential as Anthony Pohl. There is now a plaque, not an English heritage plaque, on Empson's house on uh, Haverstock Hill, 
Oh, is it? Good. Well, that's, that, that, that's, that's mollified me a little. <laughs> <laughs> well, Alan and Sam, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you both. Thank you. And that's everything this week. As ever, if you've enjoyed the podcast, please do pick up a copy of the magazine and you can read everything we've talked about. I'm Lara Prendergast. And I'm William Moore. And we hope you'll join us again next week. 